what you do need to do before you start law school is to know your why you want to do this. For me, it was because I wanted to be a professional problem solver. I knew that I was analytical and that I had people skills and I could read a room and I could read a situation and I could be strategic about how to find the best way forward. And I wanted to apply that professionally because I enjoy applying that personally. And that was the why. It wasn't Aisha wants to be a finance attorney and do big lending transactions. That was not it. But the why was important because the why is what you come back to in the moments where you've been broken down and you're questioning your reason for being there in the first place. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Under Oath, a podcast brought to you and hosted by the organization Women Pursuing Law. I'm Hani Siddiqui, WPL's president. And I'm Zara Kabir, WPL's vice president. Under Oath will aim to shed light on different career paths within law, give you the chance to hear from noted speakers, and show the industry from the POV of a woman. Under Oath will also serve as a platform dedicated to empowering women and non-binary conforming individuals in the law industry. So if that aligns with your ideas, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. On that note, be sure to follow us on our Instagram at UTDWPL and our LinkedIn at UTD Women Pursuing Law. And without further ado, let's get right into this episode. So you touched on the difference between your training in a smaller law firm versus the big one that everybody idealizes and wants to go to and like just has has dreamt about since forever. How do you think your law school experience at the University of Chicago prepared you for going into corporate law and experiencing these these different types of world experiences? I think my law school experience taught me how to tolerate pain. <laughs> Isn't that so uplifting? I think my law school experience taught me to tolerate pain. And I don't really, I say that somewhat ironically, um, but my law school experience was like not smooth. Just like getting into law school was not smooth for me. And again, I don't think this is something that people like let people in on very often, right? You look at my resume, you see Aisha, you know, honors at UTD, UChicago Law, Kirkland and Ellis Associate. Um, and you see that and you're, you're like, oh, I bet she got into law school right away. I bet she didn't take the LSAT three times. I took the LSAT three times. I, you know, improved my score from being like, I think 60 something percentile to 99th percentile, not because like I drank some magic Kool-Aid, but it was like years of hard work and hard studying and learning the test. And I think that that was the same thing with law school where, I, I knew I was like a smart kid. I was like, you know, that 4.0 GPA teacher's pet type A personality. And I was like, oh, this is LSAT's no big deal. Law school's no big deal. It's going to be just fine. And then I got there and I was like brought to my knees each time. And I think that what I learned from law school that I think was most important, because I do have a lot of friends who like breeze through law school. I just wasn't that person. I don't think law school is designed for women and minorities. I think that hopefully that's going to start changing. But I just, I, I don't think that, like, law school is not optimized for Aisha Noor. Aisha Noor had to figure out how to survive law school, just like she had to figure out how to survive the LSAT. And so I think that the most important thing that I learned was resilience and was learning when you fail, when you do poorly, when you 
don't get the result that you want, whether it's on an exam or it's on a test, um, whether it's on a memo or a brief that you wrote, how do you pick up the pieces and how do you reassess and continue to play to your strengths and overcome? And I don't think I'd had that experience before law school. I was always like the smart kid. And I think that law school brought me to my knees in a way that it just didn't for other people. But my experience in law school was learning how to tolerate, accept, and overcome failure. And I think that that was a really important lesson for me to learn. And it means law school was so hard <laughs> that when I went into big law and I'm working 80 to 100 hours a week, I'm like, this is so much more fun. This is like so much more fun than law school. So there are people who killed it in law school and get to big law and are like, oh my gosh, this is miserable. And I'm like, oh, you don't like this? I love this because this is the first time that I'm seeing the skills that I think are important and that are, are you know, the ones that are always at the forefront of how I approach situations coming in handy. And guess what? That they, they didn't come in handy when I was trying to brief cases and I was trying to take exams. And, uh, and so I think that that, that for me, uh, it, I was very lucky that I didn't hate law school and then get into practice and then hate practice too. Would have been like a real waste of time, guys. I think that for me, law school, the most important thing was resilience. And I, I don't think, I think a lot of people have a really good time in law school. I definitely made some amazing friends in law school. Um, you know, those are relationships that are forged in fire. I tended to find the people who are also struggling and were like, what's wrong with us? Why isn't this coming easy like it is to that kid over there? And, and those are relationships that are forged in fire. There are people that I know I'm going to be friends with for the rest of my life. But I, I think that I, I just, I don't think people talk about it enough. Um, I was driving friends to the hospital constantly at UChicago. It's, it's a tough law school. It's a law school that in some respects pride, prides itself in not being pass fail. There are like eight different ways to get an A and 13 different ways to get a B. Like our grading system is absurd. And I think that so many of those things contributed to people's anxiety in a way that like just wasn't livable for people. And I think it made all of us better corporate lawyers. <laughs> like, all of my friends who like got through it and went on to do corporate law or litigation or just big law in general, I think that we, we had to learn how to be humble. And we had to learn, first of all, the things that kept us going because I could have quit law school. I could have dropped out. I thought about it. I really thought about it. Um, but you have to kind of remember your why and, and I think that that is a skill that is important for people. And I'm lucky that I didn't face, you know, I, I had, I, I would say for like a Muslim hijabi woman with a lot of opinions and a big personality growing up in Texas, I would say that like, I had a pretty charmed life compared to how bad it could have been, right? Like I was pretty lucky to not have had any like big traumatic life experiences. And law school's like, or the LSAT, law school and the LSAT were like my first traumatic life experiences. So I'm really lucky in that sense. The amount of privilege that I walked into law school with and I walked out of law school with are like, you know, you can't even, can't even comprehend, right? I have so much privilege. But I, I think that for me, law school was about learning how to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And 
I think it's that way for a lot of people. Maybe I'm self-soothing by saying that, but like, I think it's that way for a lot of people, but it's easy to forget. And it's easy when you're talking to people who are thinking about going to law school to, you know, be nostalgic and ideal, you know, idealize your previous experience. And I think that that's just not fair. Like law school's hard. Depending on your, where you go, it could also be miserable. But the fact of the matter is, is, is the why of when, why you went to law school becomes so much more important because that's what gets you through law school. And then hopefully you'll get to the point where you're practicing and you're like obsessed with your job and you love what you do. And I wouldn't have ever gotten here had I not persevered through failing a lot, like being bad at something. And, and I think that's what law school taught me. So unfortunately, not a very good answer, right? Law school did not teach me how to draft a contract. Law school did not teach me how to negotiate a deal. I took all those classes. I learned all of those things in theory, but it was getting into practice and seeing it myself and recognizing that I was not the biggest fish in the pond, recognizing that I was going to have to work hard to prove myself, but also knowing the things that kept me in this field that made it so much easier to be in corporate law and be like, okay, I've like already been bad at something. Like if I'm bad at this, who cares, right? I'm going to go and I'm going to try to learn and I'm going to get the experience I want. And I'm going to ask the questions that other people are scared to ask because they are not used to looking dumb. I can look dumb. I know how to look dumb. I've done it for three years. Like, I think that was a very freeing aspect of being bad at law school. And I like overstated a little bit. I had a terrible for one L year. By the end of it, I had like pulled my grades up, you know, top quartile of my class, like did really well. And it was because I had found the classes that catered to the future I wanted for myself. I had found, I had problem solved and problem solved and problem solved and reassessed so many times about how not to be the dumbest kid in the room that I had like figured out how to succeed. And I think that there's a fearlessness that comes with being, being like, okay with being bad at something and getting past that. And surviving that where like in big law I'm like okay I get something wrong so so like you you can amend any contract you can retract any email you can send a correction any day and I don't think I'd fully appreciated the elasticity of that the fact that you can screw up and all you got to do is like fix it that's it and I think it Before I went to law school, I was this kid who like assumed that everything had to be perfect the first time. You had to ace the test the first time. You had to nail the negotiation the first time. And I realized that there's so much more elasticity to success than people realize. And I could only learn that by being really bad at things. It was embarrassing. I look back and I'm like, whew, I would not be taking advice from me about law school. (laughs) Except for how not to, how to overcome failure. Because I do think, you know, you figure, you figure that out by failing a lot of times. Well, I just have to say, I think it's really refreshing that you're showing or telling us both the pros and the cons of every single situation you've been in, because I know a lot of the times we just see the pros. And like you said, we just see the list of achievements that you have. And we're like, wow, she did it. She just went in there and she killed it. She did everything from one position to the next. And I think it's just, it was, it's really refreshing to hear you say that there are cons to everything. There are struggles to every situation that you've been in. Yeah, that's what's real about people's experiences, right? Of course, when you're interviewing for a job, you're going to put your best foot forward. When you're posting something on social media, you're going to put your best foot forward. I, I think especially, you know, I was, I was a kid who grew up 
without social media and then with social media. I got my first phone, I think in like eighth grade and it was like a Nokia phone that you played snake on that like all the cool TikTok kids want now, but I had one of those. And like, so I lived in a world where like you, you didn't see the highlight reel constantly. And I've also, I'm in a generation that has now has been a part of that highlight reel and it's been a part of posting those highlights. And I think it just gets lost a lot. So like, I, I don't think it is a sign of weakness to talk about your struggles. And that's important to me to talk about my struggles because it makes it, maybe it creates a permission structure for you to screw up a little bit in your own life and realize that it's going to be okay. You're going to have the badass bio. You're going to have, you know, the website at your firm that people look at and are like, wow, look at what she did. But like, it's okay to screw up because I've done it so many times. Well, shifting a little bit from our current topic, in our previous episode, we talked about the import, importance of diversity in the field of law, whether it be relating to the clients a firm retains or employees that a firm hires. As a Muslim woman in the field of law, do you feel like the field of law has become more inclusive and accepting of minority communities? Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think, you know, we owe it all to the the you know the black men and women who have paved the way to the to the lgbtq men and women and theys and thems who have paved the way you know we we owe it to so many people who have like fought the hard fight and have cleared the underbrush and have made the path that much easier for someone like me to come into this practice but i don't think our work is done you can still look at any law firm, at any practice, even legal aid organizations. You can look at the bios on the websites. And I don't know about you, but the faces just start running together, right? And I think it's good that the practice is aware of it. I think that there's a lot more to be done to fix this than to just go to law schools and offer the hijabi every job you can offer them, right? That's too late. That's why talking to undergraduates and talking to high school students is so much more important because if you're trying to recruit someone out of law school, it's too late. Our law school classes are not representative of the population. I think there are a couple of law schools who have had classes where there are more women than men in the class than ever before, right? Or for the first time, women outnumber men. And, and th that's great, right? We're seeing the pipeline to law school improve. And there's like, there's two sides to this problem. The pipeline to law school is the first point, right? You need to make sure that diverse people are going to law school and like surviving law school. You have to create ways and you have to build mentorship programs and you have to build support systems that allow people to survive law school. And then you got to get them jobs, right? There's like steps there. And I think that this is the part that a lot of the field is neglecting. I don't think that, I think we spend more time at law school level recruiting. And I think we need to devote more time like 10 years before anyone starts law school. And that's why things like this are really important to me. Um, but I think widening the pipeline is the first thing that's most important in this work in progress, because it will be a work in progress. Um, like our, wasn't it RBG who said, you know, how many women will be enough women in the Supreme Court? And she said nine, right? Until I can look at a law firm and see the men sorely outnumbered, I won't think my work is done here.
And I think that that's the first aspect of the problem. And I think it's a really hard problem to solve because law school is expensive. Going to a good law school is even harder. The LSAT is a test that I don't know how much research has been done about whether it offers equal opportunities to people with backgrounds that are not cishet white men. I think that there's a lot of work to be done in terms of figuring out whether the path to law school is inclusive. That's one thing. The other piece that I think law firms are somewhat more focused on, which is good, is the fact that let's say I have a class of 10 first years that started a law firm. Okay, five of them are men, five of them are women. Four E's, let's take minorities out of it, right? So I'm not going to talk about the trans woman. I'm not going to talk about the Muslim woman. I'm not going to talk about people who have stacked identities that make them, you know, stacked minority cards, let's say, or minority chips. We're just going to talk men and women. Simple, binary. How many of those women will still be in the firm three or four years later compared to their male counterparts is a huge problem. And retention in law is, I think, something that firms are a little bit more focused on than they are on the pipeline. But that's another real problem. The fact that corporate law and litigation and big law do not really set up modes of success for women and minorities because in our society, women still do so much more emotional labor. They carry so many more burdens in the home. And, um, you know, we, we still ultimately live in a patriarchy. And I think that that's another aspect of big law and of law in general that is a work in progress. Figuring out how to retain talent, but not just retaining them at cost to their personal lives, at cost to their happiness, um, but retaining them in ways that they have like a sustainable life. And one that is fulfilling and that is positive. And I think that's, that's the real struggle. But I think that law firms are being more proactive about that because it's a little bit more like a bird in the hand versus two in the bush. You got, you have an Aisha at a firm. How are you going to retain her? How are you going to make sure that she can stay, that she has the ability and the desire to continue working as hard as she's working? How can you make that happen? And I think that that is a question that law firms are grappling with and are doing like a decent job of getting started on addressing. And I guess the last thing is how law firms can give back to the community. And I think that that is something I'm really proud of my firm with, with what it does. Um, we have incredible focus on pro bono um, and, and we get opportunities constantly. I get an email once a week. Have you done any pro bono this week? You know, we get, we're constantly being asked and reminded about pro bono, but they also um, are donating money to causes after after George Floyd was murdered and you know the wave of protests that you know covered the country our firm was like okay you know a lot of firms are doing donation matching programs that's great I give a hundred dollars the firm matches a hundred dollars my firm said we're going to donate five million dollars in five years and we're going to pick causes for criminal and social justice and they, it wasn't that the firm picked those causes they said okay every city every office that we have I want you guys to identify local causes because the ACLU is doing amazing work and getting lots of support. But what about the Boys and Girls Club down the street? 
what about those local organizations that are providing direct services to people that like we national Kirkland don't know about, but you know, in your local communities, identify those to us. And then we'll, we'll figure out how to distribute the funds. And I thought that that was a really incredible approach. And it was an approach that a lot of law firms didn't take. And I've been at places where I'm not proud of their responses to these things. I've been at schools where I'm not proud of their responses to those things. But this was one of the few moments in my career where I was like, hold up. I think this is actually a really constructive response. Of course, there's always room for improvement. But I was like, this is cool. I approve of this. Like, you know, not that my stamp of approval matters even one bit, but I was like, this is great. I'm proud to be a part of a firm like this. So I think that that kind of third piece is one that is easiest for firms to address because it's not systemic and it's firms basically contributing to alleviating other systemic issues. But the systemic issues within the field, they're gonna take some time. And I think that that's why it's important for me to continue to be out there, for you guys to do what you're doing with things like this podcast, you're flattening access. You're creating access for people to learn about this field, all aspects of it, the good and the bad. And I think that that's something a lot of people didn't have 50 years ago. I didn't have it. There was no cool podcast for me to listen to, right? And I think that that's really important. But work in progress, it's going fine, I guess. <laughs> the fact that I'm at a firm like Kirkland and doing well is like evidence of the fact that like it's going fine. Could it go better? Always. Yeah, I think what you mentioned, everything that you've just said, it's going to constantly be a work in progress. And until firms realize all three parts that you just mentioned, it's always going to be constantly working to be better, working to get better. I don't think that just automatically stops. I don't think that will ever just automatically stop. Yeah. Well, now my last two questions are something I like to ask our guests. What is something you would tell yourself going into law school? And what is something you recommend to all students thinking about law school? Something I would tell myself going into law school is talk to people who've been in law school before and ask them all kinds of questions about their study habits. Because the thing that you will realize is that everyone had a different way of approaching and succeeding in law school. And you want to make sure that you have like opened your mind enough to different ways of doing things that you have tools in your toolbox if the going gets tough. Ultimately, hopefully the study skills that you've built in your undergrad, in your master's degree, if you do one, but the skills that you've built pre-law school, whether in school, whether in being a professional, um, will be enough to get you through law school successfully, but like just in case they're not, I would be a little bit prepared. Um, and, and I think that that's something that I would generally apply. Uh, and I would tell myself is in law school, I remember every person that I talked to, I was like, oh, well, that's the way to do it. And any person that you get advice from, any person that you talk to, myself included, is going to give you advice that is steeped in their own experience and in their own bias. And so it's up to you to collect that advice, but try to peel away people's personal um, reasons for giving that advice. You know, I'm going to tell you what I think will help you succeed, but it's going to be based on what helped me succeed. And it's up to you to start peeling away those layers and kind of get to the, get to the bottom, get to the core of what people are offering you. But I would take everyone's advice, piece of salt, a grain of salt. Wow. 
I would take everyone's, I would take everyone's advice with a grain of salt because everyone comes from their own place of, of bias. And so that's the thing that I would, I would tell myself going into law school um, is to not be swayed by every person that I talk to and assume that there's only one way to do it right. There's so many ways. What was your second question? What is something you would recommend to prospective law students thinking about law school? I would make sure your why is really strong. And that's not to say that you need to know exactly what you want to do coming out of law school. You don't. You have so much time to explore. The world of law is so much broader than what we watch on Law & Order SVU or on Suits. I'll tell you, my paralegals do not look like Meghan Markle. Big disappointment. But there's so much out there. And law is an incredibly broad world. And we're really only exposed to a tiny, tiny fraction of it in pop culture. And I would say that you don't need to know where you're going to fit in in the legal world because that's, that's going to find its way to you. What you do need to do before you start law school is to know your why and know why you want to do this. For me, it was because I wanted to be a professional problem solver. I knew that I was analytical and that I had people skills and I could read a room and I could read a situation and I could be strategic about how to find the best way forward. And I wanted to apply that professionally because I enjoy applying that personally. And that was the why. It wasn't, Aisha wants to be a finance attorney and do big trans lending transactions. No, that was not it. But the why was important because the why is what you come back to in the moments where you've been broken down and you're questioning your reason for being there in the first place. So I would say that. The other thing, this is like maybe too practical. Study really hard for the LSAT, like really hard for the LSAT. The LSAT is a completely learnable test. I am, I, as I mentioned, I am not someone who had success the first or even the second time around. You take that test enough times and you practice enough times with like real tests and you can start to predict the question stem before you finish reading the prompt. Like you can start to predict those things because it's a very pattern-based test. And I don't think people realize that soon enough. And I don't think people talk about it. But the LSAT is an extremely learnable test. And every point that you get on the LSAT is not just another offer for law school that you're going to get. It's more scholarship money. And I think folks would be surprised as how, at how much an LSAT score can translate to coming out of law school debt-free. I'm very lucky to say that I had a scholarship to UChicago, and I 100% attribute it to the fact that, of course, I had good grades. Of course, I had a good resume, but my LSAT score and how hard I worked to get it as high as I humanly could was part of the reason why I was able to, to go to UChicago on a scholarship. And I had full rides at other law schools as well. And so I would say, if the LSAT seems really hard the first couple of times around, it's because it's a really hard test and you're using aspects of your brain that you've never used before, that undergrad does not prepare you for, but what you have to do is similar to becoming a deal lawyer and, and learning. You have to get those repetitions in. You have to practice so that the patterns start to become very clear to you because all you're doing is building a framework in your mind for how to approach a problem. You're building a framework. You're never going to know the answer in advance, but you're building a framework for how to approach problems. 
And if you can solidify that framework enough, the LSAT becomes as easy as a snap of the finger. And it's possible. It was not that way for me in the beginning, but I got there and it took a lot of time. And it took a lot of tests <laughs> and it took a lot of retaking tests. Um, but I think that it, it is absolutely doable. And if you have the time to devote to perfecting your LSAT, I absolutely think it is not just more offers in your pocket. It's more money in your pocket. And it's a nice way to come out of law school. So to be like uber practical, <laughs> I'm happy. Like the one other thing is, is lawyers love to talk. Lawyers love to talk about themselves as well. So like reach out to lawyers, talk to us. I have like people will look through Kirkland's website, see the only hijabi and be like, oh, I'm going to email her. And I will talk to anyone who shoots me an email because it's important to me that I'm helping flatten the access, right? I'm helping break down some of the barriers to access in this field. And like, I have given such specific LSAT advice to people and am happy to do that. And I think any lawyer would do the same. And um, it's just important to feel comfortable reaching out, but just if you want to put some of the anxiety to the side, like no lawyers ever want to say no to talking about themselves. They're just not. So like take advantage of that and go and like learn as much as you can. That wraps up our second discussion into the world of corporate law. I want to thank Aisha for taking the time out of her schedule to speak with us about her work and career. We really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thanks, guys. Be sure to check out our previous episodes on corporate law, international law, IP law, as well as our episode featuring our president and VP, Hania and Zara. As always, this is Under Oath, and I rest my case. Thank you for tuning in today to our bi-weekly episodes. My name is Maisha Shaif, and I'm the production chair for WPL. This episode was written by Nadia Bhatti, edited by Kara Curtis, and hosted by Kavya Venagopalan. If you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you left a short review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow us on Instagram at UTDWPL and LinkedIn at UTD Woman Pursuing Law. Goodbye and stay safe.